Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, can you open them up to Luke's Gospel? And as you're opening them up, let me ask you this question. Have you noticed that Christmas is the only Christian holiday that is also a major secular holiday? In fact, it's our culture's biggest holiday. And because of this reality that it is both a Christian holiday and it has become a secular holiday, um, what happens is, because of this reality, each year different celebrations are being observed by millions of people. And this brings a level of discomfort to people on both sides, to both people who are Christians and people who are not Christians, non-religious this, this reality that it's being observed differently by, by both sets of people, it brings a level of discomfort. Many Christians, maybe you've noticed this, many Christians can't help but notice that um, more and more of the public festivities surrounding Christmas avoids any mention of the name of Jesus. Have you noticed that? Yeah. I was at, uh, years ago, several years ago, my youngest daughter had a Christmas ballet performance, which, if you want to be entertained, watch five-year-olds trying to do ballet. It's just unbelievably entertaining. But of the 12 music selections for a Christmas ballet performance, only one of them had a mention of the name of Christ in it. Only one. It was kind of shocking to me. Um... More and more of the public festivities avoid any mention of the name of Jesus. If you walk into any store to do your Christmas shopping, you'll notice the background music has switched from something like Joy to the World to Have a Holly Jolly Christmas. And see, and that, that brings a level of discomfort to many Christians. I can actually hear the discomfort, the groan. As I mentioned, it switched from Joy to the World to Holly Jolly Christmas. I heard a groan settle in amongst the congregation. It brings a level of discomfort to many Christians. On the other hand, non-religious people, they can't help but find the traditional meaning of Christmas um, soaking into their Christmas celebrations through Christmas carols. They just they pop on the radio every once in a while, especially the closer you get to the... the uh, to Christmas, the day of Christmas, they'll soak into through the Christmas carols. They'll turn on older TV programs that actually spoke of Jesus, like the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which is still one of the best Christmas shows on there, and it actually has some pretty good theology in it. They can't help non-religious people can't help but the true meaning of Christmas comes through in some of those things, and what that does this discord between religious folks and unreligious folks, between Christians and non-religious people. What happens each year at Christmas, this affords us, and you've got to see it as this if you're a Christian, it affords us an opportunity. It affords us an opportunity to actually explain what Christmas is about and how God's grace comes to us as a free gift. But just like any other gift, you have to welcome it. And you have to receive God's gift of grace. And so we, as Christians, what that means is we need to have a better grasp 
on what's really happening in the whole Christmas event so that we're, we're able to share the message with people who are non-religious. And this is why we spend each year a couple of weeks leading up to the Christmas day looking at the accounts leading up to Christ's birth. And that's what we've been doing last week, this week, and what we're going to do next week. And it's what we're going to do this morning. Look at Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. So what we need, as, as I just said, what we need is to go back and really see what's happening uh, in the accounts leading up to the birth of Christ. And so we're, we're looking this year in Luke's gospel. And as I look out, I know many of you, you know the accounts. You know the rough sketches of what's happening uh, leading up to birth's Christ, the, the Jesus' birth. The Lord sends Gabriel. We saw this last week. The Lord sends the angel Gabriel to Mary, this young girl who is betrothed, so she's in her, her culture, uh, engaged to be married to Joseph. Um, and Gabriel comes to her with this startling news. And the news is that though she's a virgin, she will conceive by the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son. And then Gabriel tells her um, a little bit about the son. And he says to her, his character will be holy. He says in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, go ahead and look at it. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So his character is holiness, which is only God's character. So this is holiness personified. And this is, which means it's God in the flesh. So his character is holy. But then Gabriel goes on and says, his vocation will be that of a king. His vocation will be that of a king. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So he's the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. This is what Mary's here. He's the one who's going to fulfill the, the Davidic covenant. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this is the true king in God's kingdom. He's the rightful king. He's King David's greater son. He's the one that Israel has been longing for, and his kingdom will continue to endure. There will never be an election for a new king of the universe. All God's people said. (laughs) There will never be an election. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So it will endure and expand as more and more people come under his kingship. So his character will be holy. His vocation will be that of a king, and then his purpose will be to save. Gabriel tells Mary in verse 31 that you're to give him the name Jesus. And I mentioned this last week that Jesus is the uh, Greek translation of the name Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. This is why in Matthew's account, when Gabriel comes to, Matt, or to Joseph, he says you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Well, he will save his people he will save his people. His people. That's a whole other conversation we'll talk about later. But he will save his people from their sins. Therefore, the king of the universe is given the name Savior, 
which means all of his deity, all of his holiness, all of his deity, all of his power stands in the service of his saving mercy. So this child, who was God in the flesh, entered into his own creation to be a holy, divine, saving king. Now this is the news. Now We hear this, and you guys don't look shocked. And of course you're not, because you've heard this message time and time again. But consider if you're Mary. This is the news that's given to Mary. This is startling news, to say the least. And she has to consider it carefully. And that's what we looked at last week. How, how she didn't just readily accept it. She wasn't a rube. She wasn't naive. She wasn't gullible. She had to really consider this. She, it fully engaged her mind. She thought it through. She gradually came. And then she willingly surrendered, which is what we see in verse 38. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. Now again, note what she's not saying in that. She's not saying, I absolutely love this plan. <laughs> because a lot of Christians think that's what she's saying. That just right off the get-go, she's like, I absolutely love this plan. I'm so excited to be a part of it. Because at first, she probably wasn't. Because it was going to mean ridicule for her. It was going to mean a loss of a reputation for her. It was going to mean a loss of a reputation for her parents. And remember, in a traditional culture, traditional cultures are honor-shame-based. And it was going to bring shame upon her family. Because nobody was going to believe she didn't commit adultery with, with somebody else before Joseph. Or that she had sex with Joseph before they were legally married. It was going to bring shame upon her family. And in that culture, traditional cultures, remember, death is preferred before shame. And so she knew it was going to mean ridicule for her. It was going to mean loss of reputation for her and her parents. It was going to mean the loss of friendships for her. Because nobody was going to believe her. And she knew it was going to mean ridicule for her son. And so when she hears this, it is startling news, but she doesn't, and she's thinking it through, but she gets to the point where she willingly surrenders, even though she knows it's going to be hard. So what is she saying when she's saying, may it be to me according to your word? What she's saying is something of, something like, even though this doesn't all make sense to me right now, I will pursue this. Even though it won't be easy, I will trust you. Despite my fears, despite my reservations, I will trust the Lord and I will move forward. Now listen, you know what that is? That's a, that's a mark of genuine discipleship to the Lord. That's what that is. And sometimes all you can do is exactly what Mary does here. You trust the Lord, despite your fear and your reservations, and you move forward. And sometimes, that's all you can do. I was talking with a person just this last week, who had major news given to him, devastating news to, given to him. And I said, you know, sometimes all you can do is give whatever level of faith you have to the Lord in this moment, and put one foot in front of the other, and you trust the Lord. And that's a mark, that is a real mark of genuine discipleship. And that's sometimes all you can do. That's what Mary does here. And again, that's a genuine mark of discipleship. But by the way, that's a mature discipleship. Now, how old is Mary? 
She's a teenager. 13, 14, 15. Now know what that means though. It means mature discipleship is not based on an age. You could have really mature discipleship as a young person. Did you know that? That's what you, that's parents. That's actually your aim for your kids, isn't is it not? That they would have mature discipleship as at an early age. It also means on the flip side of that, you don't become a mature disciple just by an age. It's by saying, no, Lord, I trust you despite my fears, despite uh, my reservations, despite um, my lack of education, my lack of wisdom. I'm going to trust you completely and I'm going to move forward. That's a sign of mature discipleship. And that's what we see in Mary. So Gabriel tells her some startling news. And then, however, he also tells her that her cousin Elizabeth, her much older cousin Elizabeth, is pregnant. And so what we see, beginning in verses 39 through 56 in Luke chapter 1, which is where we're going to be this morning, we see Mary rush off to go to Elizabeth's house, Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And so what we're going to look at this morning is verses 39 through 56, and it breaks down nicely into two sections. In verses, I'll give you the outline if you're a note taker. In verses 39 through 45... What we'll see is uh, the mothers meet and their joy is complete. These two mothers that are each carrying hugely important um, children in God's plan of redemption. Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist and Mary, of course, is carrying Jesus. These two mothers meet and their joy is complete. And then what we'll see in verses 40, uh, 46 through 56, we'll see Mary sings. And praise comes forth. So let's get into the text. Verse, verse 39. Here's how Luke records it. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And, and Luke doesn't tell us what town she went to, but Zechariah was a priest in the temple, so which means she, they're probably living someplace just outside of uh, Jerusalem, maybe one of the little hill, hill villages outside of Jerusalem. And this is an 80-mile journey for that Mary makes, and this is before planes, trains, and automobiles. But she goes with haste, and she must have sensed God calling her to go visit Elizabeth. And so she packed up whatever she needed to, and she made this trek to visit Elizabeth. And she enters in to Zechariah's house, and she greets Elizabeth, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in, in Elizabeth's body, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth, we're told here she's filled with the Holy Spirit and she perceives what's really happening here. She looks at her 13, 14, 15 year old niece and the Spirit tells her that Mary has been graciously 
chosen to bear God's son, to bear the deliverer. And look at what she says next. Look at what she says, verse 43. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She she looks at this the child within Elizabeth, uh, within Mary as her superior and speaks of him as my Lord. The word, word she uses there is the Greek word chorios, and it means master. And think about that because Elizabeth hasn't seen this child yet. She hasn't heard him teach. She hasn't seen him perform any of the countless miracles. She hasn't seen him go to the cross and die for her sins and raise again and ascend it. And yet already, already the Spirit's revealed to her that this child that Mary is carrying will be the Lord himself. That's amazing. She gives insight. Mary, the first person to declare that Christ is Lord. Notice, who is the first person to declare that Christ is Lord? It's a woman. That's shocking to us. It should be shocking to you. Because you have heard, probably, raised in this culture, that Christianity has always oppressed women. And yet, all throughout Luke's gospel, what you see is women are elevated. Christianity has done nothing but elevate women. And the very first person who declares the presence of Jesus, the lordship of Christ, in Luke's gospel, is Elizabeth, is Elizabeth this woman. She, she sees it, she, she says... Why Why is the mother of my Lord here? Why have you granted me this honor? And then in verse 44, she says, She says, um, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So in the womb of Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaps for joy. Remember, John, John is the forerunner of the Messiah, who will announce the presence of the Messiah. And already in the womb, by the way, note this, in the womb, John the Baptist recognizes and rejoices over Jesus. This is the work, the first of John's prophetic announcements regarding Jesus. He, he leaps for joy. Verse 45, she goes on, she says, And blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what, the Lord, of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She looks at Mary, her young niece, and says, You're blessed. Because you've responded to God's word with faith. God's promise spoken to the angel, spoken by angel, uh, the angel Gabriel is what Mary believes will come about, is what Mary believes will occur. And she believes, she believes that God's promise that she will bear the Messiah and this fulfillment, the fulfillment of the promise given to her is all the assurance that we need that the rest of God's promises will come to pass as well. Um, also, just note this as kind of a, um, by way of application. Note that these two women enjoyed a time of fellowship together. And we're told in verse 39 that Mary went with haste, meaning that she prioritized it. You want to have healthy, uh, mature discipleship, another f- facet of mature discipleship? You prioritize your spiritual community. You prioritize fellowship with other Christians. That's what we see Mary doing here. She prioritized this. She, she needs this life connection with Elizabeth. They were both pregnant, and they both needed one another to share life with. And fellowship 
um, fellowship is always richest when you're sharing it with people who have experienced or are experiencing something you also are experiencing or have experienced in the past. We need that connection with one another so that you can use your experiences, your challenges, your joys, your pains, your comforts to challenge, strengthen, and encourage other people. Because we crave someone who understands us, do we not? We crave it. We crave someone who understands what we're going through. And this this time for these two women, for these two pregnant women, must have been an unbelievable time of fellowship. And we read this, guys, and we think, well, that's just something women crave. No, 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 no. You see where it says he goes, she goes with haste? I think women are more naturally prone to saying, I need, I need connection with other people. But guys, the same applies to you as well. We need fellowship with one another. Uh, we need connection. We need to share life with one another. And it's one of the reasons why the men's breakfast on Friday morning is so very valuable. It's a smaller gathering where you can share life-on-life experience with you, with one another, and see how the gospel is working out in each other's lives. It's incredibly important to note that Mary prioritizes it. She goes with haste. Again, that's another mark of discipleship. So the mothers meet, their joy is complete, and now what we'll see in verses 46 through 56 is Mary sings, and her praise comes forth. And this section, as most of you will see in uh, the little heading there, it's called the Magnificat, and it's based on the, the Latin translation of the word magnifies. And what this is, as you're reading it, is this is a New Testament psalm. That's really what it is. It's a New Testament psalm. And just like when you're reading the psalms, um, the psalms are very hard to read. Have you noticed that? <laughs> they are. The reason they're, they're harder, to, to, it, it, harder to read and understand is because they're poetry. They're not straight prose. We're a very prosaic culture. And so we understand prose very well. We struggle with poetry. So what you have to do with poetry, anytime you approach the psalms or you approach poetry in the Bible is you have to slow down. And that bothers us. Because we want to get on with life. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You can't, you can't read through the Bible quickly and hope to get anything out of it. So you've got to slow down. When you're reading, especially poetry, you've got to slow down. And you've got to take in the feelings. The action is in the feelings. What's being communicated is through the feelings, the, the feelings of the author. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read through verses 46 through 56, and we'll read all the way through it, and then we'll come back and I'll draw out what she's singing about. Why is she singing, and what is she singing about, okay? So verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Um, by the way, just go ahead and stop there. Sorry, I told you I was going to read all the way through it. I can't help myself. Notice in verse 47, she says, in God my Savior. A little aside here, because much of the Catholic Church has wrongly believed in what's been called the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That's the belief that uh, Mary, when she was conceived, was conceived without original sin. 
and that she lived a perpetual uh, sinless life. In fact, um, many Catholics will call Mary uh, the co-mediator with Christ and the co-redemptress. Meaning, um, Mary herself, alongside of Jesus, will mediate redemption to people. And that is a wrong belief, um, and Mary herself doesn't hold it. Because that's not what Mary says here. She confesses her need for a Savior. She says, look again at it. She says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So she knew she needed a Savior. Now that doesn't diminish Mary in any way. Right? Mary was a godly woman. She was a woman who was blessed by God. She was a woman of faith. She was, she was highly favored of the Lord. She's blessed in, in, in a lot of ways. And she was, was unique in God's redemptive history. But Mary was not sinless. Mary was a sinner who knew that she needed a Savior. And she confesses that right here. And the best way to honor Mary is to take Mary at her word. That's the best way to honor Mary. Is you can, you can say everything the scripture has said about her, that she was highly favored of God, that she was uniquely blessed, that she was the mother of the Lord, that she was a woman of great faith. And yet, you can still say, Mary needed a savior. You can agree with what Mary says. And says, oh no, Mary herself needs a savior. She knows she needs Jesus as well. Which means she's not a co-mediator of redemption. Uh, only Christ brings forth redemption. And so she says, Go back, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on his hum- on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Note, note her humility. She knows she doesn't deserve any of this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And fear in the Bible, um, it means one who holds God in awe and reverence, who acknowledges God as holy and sovereign. So his mercy, God's mercy extends to those who acknowledge God as holy and sovereign and who stand in awe of him. His mercy extends to them from generation to generation. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, um, this doesn't come very doesn't come out very well in the English text, but what this is, what's happening right here in verses fifty one through fifty six, this is a, a prophetic aorist in, in the Greek, and I say that to you, and that didn't elicit much of a response. Nobody seemed thrilled. With that news, here's what a. Um, I'm going to move this. Here's what a. What's happening here with with this prophetic um, heiress? What what it means is, um, 
what she's saying is, based upon the nature of this child, what she's just said right there, has ha, she views it as already happened. It, even though it's a future event, in her mind, it's a past reality. It's, there's nothing that can be done to stop it based on the nature of this child. It's like a boulder going through a spider web. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And so what Mary's saying is based upon the nature of this child, God is doing these things. And it's so certain and it's so sure she's seeing these future events as a past reality. And what she says specifically here is, well, is that he will scatter. God will scatter and send away those who are rich and proud. So those in, who have a stake in this age, those who have social status and social capital, who have a real stake in this age, and therefore they're not dependent upon God, she's saying this child will scatter those people. Those people who are not dependent upon God, who because of their social status and social capital, and they have a stake in this age, and they're not really depending upon God, he will scatter those people. While those who are humble and hungry in heart, so those who have little status, those who have no stake in this age, those who are completely depending upon God, Mary is saying this child will lift up and fill those people. That's what she's saying. Those who are humble and hungry in heart, those who have no stake in this age, and therefore they are completely depending upon the Lord himself to rescue them, those people will be high and lifted up. And then she goes on, verse 54. Look at what she says again. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary says he has given help. He has taken a hold of Israel. So because of who Jesus is in the line of, of Abraham, He's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So she's singing about all that God will do in and through Christ for all people. And then verse 56, And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. And we'll stop right there. Okay, um, notice how deep and profound her words are from Mary. This whole, this whole um, poetry... This whole psalm, I don't know if you noticed, but it is saturated in Old Testament Scripture. All the way through, it's just saturated in Old Testament Scripture. And remember, Mary is a young girl, 13, 14, 15. And in one of the most critical moments of her life, what comes spilling out? It's the Word of God. Think about that for a moment, because Mary is probably illiterate. Um, most girls in that, that day and that age in a little backwater town were illiterate. But you can tell that Mary has absorbed the Bible from a very young age, and you can tell it shaped her life. She knew the scriptures. She meditated upon them. She memorized them. And in one of the most critical moments of her life, she recalled them. And she put her weight down upon them. Meaning, like, if you were to cut Mary open, she would bleed Bible. And that's what you want. Let me say something here about the importance of having your kiddos in Sunday school and in the Awana program. You want your kids 
to have the word of God planted deep within them so that at the critical moments of their life, what comes out is the word of God? Listen, that won't happen by chance. It won't happen in your kid's life by chance. Um, nothing happens. In, in Nothing happens that's outside of the ordinary like that by chance. It, what it takes is parents and grandparents who are very intentional, who look at their young kids and say, you know what, we prioritize knowing God's word. And you're going. <laughs> and we're going to pitch in and help out. That's what it takes. It takes intentionality on the part of parents and grandparents. And listen, there's hundreds of ways to do this with your kids. It doesn't have to be Awana in Sunday school, although I highly recommend that. Um, there's hundreds of ways you can get the Bible into your kids. Uh, when our kids were young, we, I need to get back into the habit of doing this. But when our kids were real young, I used to type up a memory verse each week and put it on the refrigerator. And the reason I put it on the refrigerator is because they made a thousand trips a day to the refrigerator. And I thought every time they open up the, the refrigerator, they're going to read the Bible, they're going to read the scripture, and take it in, and then at the end of the week on Sunday, Sunday nights, they would, I would have them recite the scripture to me. And then I'd put a new one up. I need to get in, back into the habit of doing that because they go to the fridge more now than they've ever done before. There's hundreds of ways you could do it. You could do it like that. You could do it with, um, on your phones. All of us have iPhones or some other phone. There are all sorts of apps. Your kids... Some, one of the major frustrations most parents have is their kids are on their phones all the time. Is that not true? Yeah, my kids have my phone all the time. It's, I hear it all the time. Well, okay, get one of the apps. Get Fighter Versus app. That's the one I use. Fighter Versus app. And it's a way to memorize scripture. It gives you a new scripture each week. It gives you all sorts of tools to memorize the, the scripture each week. Do something along one of those lines. Whichever way you do it, parents, be intentional about it. So that like Mary, at the critical moments of your kid's life, what comes to their mind, what shapes their heart, what pours forth from their lips is gospel-centered. We see that with Mary. Okay, let's go back here. Here's what I want to do. I want to see what Mary says the Lord is doing in and through the Incarnation. There's three things, actually, that Mary says the Lord is doing in and through this child that she's carrying. So what's the Lord doing in and through this child that she's carrying? Three, three truths. Here's the first one. Note this. He's revealing his greatness. What's the Lord doing in and through the incarnation in using Mary? Here's the first thing he's doing. He's revealing his greatness. How? By using the weak and unimpressive. He's revealing his greatness by using the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Well, who's the weak and the unimpressive? Mary. Mary is absolutely weak and absolutely unimpressive. Remember, she's no more than 15 years of age. And we know, based upon the sacrifice that they offer at the temple after Jesus' birth, that they were quite poor. Mary and Joseph were quite poor. And we know that with this pregnancy, she's going to be a social outcast. So here's Mary, this young, poor, unimpressive girl near the bottom of the social ladder. And the Lord says, perfect. She's perfect. She's the one I'm going to use to accomplish my eternal purposes. Let me ask you this. 
Do you feel weak and unimpressive in the world's estimation? (laughs) Do you? Um, Maybe the job promotion you were hoping to get hasn't come through. Or maybe the marriage you dreamed of has splintered and shattered. Or maybe the life you hope to have hasn't arrived yet. Or the ministry you sought hasn't materialized yet. If that's true, let me encourage you by reading what Mary sang again. She says, He has been mindful of the humble estate of His servant. Which means the Lord knows exactly where you're at. And the Lord knows exactly what you're experiencing in this season of your life. And it may be this season of your life where he's stripping everything away from your life that you sought to build an identity on, rather than building and resting in the identity that the Lord's already called you. It may be that he's stripping all of these things away from you so that you can learn to fully depend upon him and to be used for his redemptive purposes. Because the Lord oftentimes will use the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Turn with me. Um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians is right after the book of Romans. The Lord will oftentimes use what is Weak and unimpressive in the world's eyes to accomplish his purposes. Look at verse 18 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at what Paul writes. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not, did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. The Jews demand miracles. And the Greeks seek wisdom. Hmm. But we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, the message of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because they couldn't wrap their, their minds around a crucified Messiah. The Messiah was to win. A crucified Messiah didn't make any sense to them. And it was a stumbling block to the Gentiles because a bodily resurrection was nonsense to Greek thinking. Because in Greek thinking, the material body was bad. Material was evil. Only the spirit was good. And so the reunification of body and spirit to a a Greek thinking person was absolute nonsense. So the message of the cross, it was a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks, but in very different ways. But look at what Paul says. He says, but to those, so it's a stumbling block to many, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now look at this. God uses an unimpressive message by the world's estimation through unimpressive people to bring about his redemptive purposes, which reveals his greatness. And that's exactly what he's doing with Mary. God uses unimpressive vessels to bring forth his redemptive purposes. And so, my friend, listen, if you feel weak, if you feel unimpressive, you're in good company. You're in great company. God can and he will use you right where you're at for his redemptive purposes. As you trust him, as you release yourself to him, he will use you right where you're at with all of your flaws, all of your sinfulness. He will use you to bring forth his redemptive purposes just as he does to, just as he uses Mary to accomplish his purposes. So go ahead and turn back to Luke now. So what's he doing? First, he's revealing his greatness. By using weak and unimpressive people to accomplish his purposes. Second thing he's doing is he's reversing the fortunes of his people. He's reversing the fortunes of his people. Remember, Mary sang about the reversal that this child will bring. She sang all about it. The rich and the proud will be scattered, while the hungry and the uh, humble will be exalted. So through this child, God is ushering in his kingdom. Remember, Gabriel comes to her and says, this child will rule and reign and he'll sit on the throne of David forever. So the Lord is, the Lord is through this child ushering in his kingdom. Where the way forward, now listen, the way of the kingdom, it's not through position. It's not through power. The way of the kingdom is not through pride. That's not the way of the kingdom. Well, what is it then? The way of the kingdom is humility coupled with real confidence in the Lord. The way of the kingdom, now listen, because everything in our culture says you need a position, you need power, and you need pride. Those three things have been the dominant feature of our culture for the last several years. Let's just say it like that. Power, position, and pride. And that that has nothing to do with the way of the kingdom. Absolutely nothing to do with the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is humility coupled with real confidence in the Lord. Trusting that the Lord will vindicate his people. Mary sings, my soul and my spirit, they rejoice in God my Savior. Why? Because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Skip down to verse 51 again. Look at what she says. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has, next line, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
So he's reversing her fortunes. But he's also reversing the fortunes of his people. Which means the way forward in under this king and in this king's kingdom isn't the way of the world. It isn't the way of power and position and pride, but it's through humility and real confidence in the Lord. Well, why would that be the case? Why would it be the case that in this kingdom, the way forward is through humility and real confidence in the Lord? Well, that's because that's the way of the king himself. The way of the king who let go of all position, positional authority and all power in order to come to us and serve us. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, which is a Christmas passage. Look at the way of the king. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now look at what Paul says of Christ. He says this king let go of his power. This king let go of his position in order to save us. And then he was highly exalted. And this, is, this becomes the paradigm for his kingdom. This becomes the paradigm for his people. Which means, one of the things that's being reversed through the, through the work of Christ is the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age is complete, being completely reversed. The Lord is turning the wisdom of this age on its end. He's turning upside down. And the way forward in this kingdom isn't through position or power. It's through humility. And it takes great humility, does it not, to admit like Mary that you need a Savior. It takes great humility that no matter your power, no matter your pedigree, no matter your position, you can't save yourself. That actually takes great humility. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard for a person who is so moral and so good to actually receive Christ's grace is because they will think, well, I, I've lived a good life. I have position. I have a good power. I have position. I have a good reputation. I have a good pedigree. It's actually very hard. It's hard to admit that you actually need a Savior. So the way forward in God's kingdom is through humility coupled with real confidence in the Lord. And we actually see that's the next thing that Mary sings about. So what's the Lord doing in the incarnation? Note these things. First, he's revealing his greatness. How? By using the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish his purposes. Second, he's reversing the, por- the fortunes of his people. And he's showing that the way of the kingdom is through humility and real confidence in the true king. And here's the third thing he's doing. He's remembering his promise to Abraham. He's remembering his promise to Abraham. Um, go back to Luke real quick. 
I won't make you turn again, I promise. Look at verse 54. Mary sings, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary's saying that through this child, God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Well, what was the promise that was given to Abraham? Come on, look alive. We've been in Genesis for four months. What was the promise given to Abraham? Okay, that good. Some of you guys are hitting it. That through his offspring, all the, that one would come from Abraham's line, in whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed. One will come who will mediate blessing to all people groups. It was supposed to be Israel. That's what Israel was set up to be. They were to be a, a, a nation who would mediate blessing to all people, but they failed at it. But the true Israel, the true son of Abraham, the one that Mary is carrying right here, he will do it. He will accomplish it. The promise to Abraham. It, now listen to what Mary's saying. She's saying, this child in me right now, He will fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham. He will mediate blessing to everybody, to every nation, to every people group. Anybody who will receive him as king, he will mediate blessing. Now think about it though, because that promise, the promise that was given to Abraham, that was a long time coming. It was centuries, millennia before this angel came to Mary. It looked like God had forgotten about it. It looked like he didn't care anymore. But then he came. Here's what that means. It means you cannot judge God by your calendar. Have you noticed that sometimes, oftentimes, God doesn't operate on our time frame? Have you noticed that before? God doesn't operate on your time. He doesn't follow our agendas or our calendars. He may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promise. And he will bring it about. He may seem to be working very slowly or even forgetting his promise, but you can walk confidently with him because his promises will come true. And when they do, they will burst the banks of our imagination, which is exactly what Paul says. Jot down Ephesians chapter 3. I told you I won't make you turn anyplace else, so I won't. Ephesians chapter 3, it's where Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we can think or imagine. And this is one of the main things the Incarnation teaches us. That God is working out His purposes and He will fulfill His promise in due time. And therefore we can rest in that reality. So what's God doing? What does is, what is Mary say God's doing through the Incarnation? He's revealing His greatness by using the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish His purposes. He's reversing the fortunes of His people. And He's showing the way of the kingdom is through humility. In confidence in the Lord. Lastly, he's remembering his promise to Abraham. You read this account, this whole thing, and you get the sense that Mary is overwhelmed with gratitude. She's just overwhelmed with this immense gratitude. Well, why? Is that just pregnancy hormones? No, it's not. (laughs) Right there in the middle of the song, she actually tells us. She declares his holiness. 
She says in verse 49, holy, in his, holy is his name. And holy, it means good, pure, without defect. Holy is his name. And name in the ancient world meant character, who the person really is. So again, she's saying that God's character is perfectly holy. She, so she declares his holiness. She tells of his might. She calls him the mighty one. And all through the scriptures, God is pictured as powerful. And she declares his might. And then lastly, she rejoices in his mercy. Two times in the psalm, she sings of God's mercy. How his mercy, the Lord's holiness, and his might gets expressed in saving mercy towards humanity. That's what she's overwhelmed by. Because in his holiness, God would have been perfectly just to leave us to our own devices. He would have been perfectly just to leave us, to abandon us. He would have been perfectly just to abandon us. In his might, he would have been perfectly just to punish us forever. But in his mercy, what is she singing about? His mercy. In his mercy, he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He came all the way down and was placed in a cradle. So that he could then go to the cross where he would bear the punishment we deserve. He would then be resurrected and ascend and he would receive a crown. So that he could bestow upon anyone who would receive him as a gift. Complete forgiveness. They would receive his grace as a gift. Listen, this is what Mary's singing about. This is the message of Christmas. And the grace of God is offered to you as a free gift. Do you see why Mary's overwhelmed? This is amazing news. All of this is simply amazing. She says, this is what the Lord is doing. And you know, my friend, God's God's grace really is a free gift. It really is a free gift. But just like any other gift, you have to receive it. You have to receive it personally. You have to receive a gift personally. And you receive his grace, his gift, by acknowledging, like Mary, that you need a savior. That you can't save yourself. You admit the depth of your brokenness and that you want to be forgiven. And you ask the Lord to be the Lord of your life and to save you from your sins. And then and only then will you be able to say what Mary has said. The mighty one has done great things for me. So you receive his grace personally. Secondly, you rest in his grace permanently. If his grace is a gift, and it is, it means there's nothing you can do to earn it. Let me ask you, your parents, most of you, when you give your kids gifts at Christmas, was it based upon what they've done? (laughs) Some of you don't answer that. (laughs) The gifts you give your kids aren't based upon what they've done. It's a gift you've given them out of love, which means there's nothing they've done to earn it. And that's how it is with the Lord and you. There's nothing you've done to earn his grace. There's nothing you've done to earn it. There's nothing you need to do to maintain it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. You simply rest in his grace. You rest in his grace permanently. Now listen, resting in his grace, it sounds like a very passive thing. And there's an element that it is passive. But on the other side of it, it's also very active. Why? 
Because you have to tell yourself again and again and again the message of the gospel. You have to tell yourself again and again again the message of the gospel that I'm not saved based on my works. I'm not saved based on my power. I'm not saved based on my pedigree. I'm saved simply because of the mercy of the Lord. I'm, I'm saved simply because the mighty one has done great things for me. And you trust what he has done for you. So you receive his grace personally. You rest in his grace permanently. And then lastly, you rejoice in his grace consistently. You rejoice in his grace consistently. You know, in one sense, Mary's situation is very unique. It's very unique. But in another sense, every Christian is like Mary. I don't know if you thought about it. But every single Christian is a lot like Mary. Because everyone who puts faith in Christ receives by the Holy Spirit Christ in you. The hope of glory. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Every single Christian who trusts Christ receives by the Holy Spirit Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which means every single one of us, if you're a Christian, every single one of us should constantly rejoice that God would give us, with all of our smallness, with all of our sinfulness, with all of our flaws, such a wonderful gift. And no Christian should ever be far removed Away from the astonishment of I, of I with all, of all people should be so loved and be bestowed with such a gift, such an amazing gift. Amen? Let me pray and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. It is a tough passage to work through. These Psalms always are. And yet, Lord, when we slow down and we consider What Mary is saying through this psalm, we should be overwhelmed with what you have done through the person of Christ. That you would bestow upon us such a gift as to remove our sins, as to indwell us by the Holy Spirit, as to empower us to live redemptively in the world in which you've called us to live. And Lord, though we don't do it perfectly all the time, we fail and we fall short, Lord, We pray that in an ever-increasing manner, we would represent Christ well, and your grace would flow from us into the people that we come into contact with. And Lord, as we approach Christmas this next week, and as families gather, we pray that we would be able to tell the good news of the gospel clearly and compellingly, so that our friends and our family, the people that we know and we love, would come under your grace and would receive it this Christmas. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.